Greetings, friends. It's the weekend of Sunday, May the 2nd. And we continue in our study of the book of Hebrews. Today we're going to be looking at chapter 3 of Hebrews through the 18th chapter, or excuse me, the 18th verse of chapter 4. Um, sort of this idea of living out of rest. What might that look like? You know, some time ago, a group of tourists were visiting in the city of Rome, and they came to an enclosure where a number of chickens were penned. And the guide who was taking them through the city said, these are very unusual and distinctive chickens. They happen to be the descendants of the rooster that crowed on the night in which Peter denied the Lord. The tourists were incredibly impressed. And one Englishman among them peered at the chickens and said, My word, what a remarkable pedigree. An American immediately reached for his checkbook and said, Hey, how much does it cost? But an Irishman there turned to the guide and said, Do they lay any eggs? He was not interested in apostolic succession, but apostolic success. You see, this is the attitude that many have toward the Christian faith, and and actually properly so. You see, can it do anything for me right now? Does the good news of the gospel have anything really helpful to say about the problems, the problems that I face, the problems of, of nervousness, of hypertension, for instance? Can it aid me in the matter of the inferiority complex that I suffer from? Will it do anything for my terrible habit, my worry, my anxiety when things don't go right? You see, these are the problems that more desperately affect our lives than any other. To be fair, we may be concerned about possible war, about nuclear annihilation, and and about global warming, about a global pandemic, about social injustice and tensions. We may be concerned about those things. We may be worried about those things, but the, the problems of anxiety and worry and stress and inferiority, perhaps resentment or bitterness are the ones which take their toll of us each day, the ones that really wear us out. In our last study in Hebrews chapter 2, it closed on that practical note. Jesus is, is coming to earth because, or excuse me, Jesus is coming to earth, becoming a man for four reasons. And among them, one, the one that we last stated was that he might be a compassionate and a merciful high priest in order that he might help those that are tempted in the midst of their temptation. And then chapter three picks up that theme and, and it develops it, asking us to consider the amazing solution that is offered by Jesus Christ to this plaguing, nagging problem of anxiety, of frustration, and all the neuroses and psychoses that are familiar today, no matter what the cause may be. So listen as I read Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. 
And now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Let me pray. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be holy, pleasing, and acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Six times in that short section, the word house appears, the house of God. There is a very common phrase, especially among Christians, which uses the term the house of God to mean a church building. A building is never truly called the house of God, either in the New Testament or the Old Testament, in the present or in the past. Certainly no church building since the days of the early church could ever properly be called the house of God. The early church never referred to any building in that way. As a matter of fact, the early church had no buildings for two to 300 years. And they were, when they referred to the house of God, they meant the people. You see, a church is not a building. It is people. In the 66th chapter of the prophecy from Isaiah, he records the words of the Lord saying, Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. Where is the house which you would build for me? All these things my hand has made. That's Isaiah 66, 1 through 2. Paul, in preaching to the Athenians, reminded them that God does not dwell in temples made by hands. That's Acts 17, 24. Even as he said those words, the temple was still standing in Jerusalem. No, God does not dwell in buildings. Then what is the house of God that is mentioned here? The answer is very clearly stated in verse 6. We are his house. We people. You see, God never intended to dwell in any building. He dwells in us. He dwells in people. And that is the divine intention in making men, mankind, that they may be the tabernacle of his indwelling. In the scene recorded in the 21st chapter of Revelation, the next to last chapter of the Bible, the vision of the prophets is fulfilled. Behold, the dwelling of God is with men. Paul refers to this in the in 1 Corinthians, know you are know you know you not that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, which you have of God. In 1 Corinthians 6. See, this is the focus toward which all scripture is directed. God's purpose is to inhabit our body and to make us be the manifestation of his life, the dwelling place of all that he is, so that as Paul prays in Ephesians 3, you may be a body holy filled and flooded with God himself. Verse 19. The great message of the gospel is that it takes God to be a man and we cannot be a man without God. You see, it takes Christ to be a Christian. And when we put Christ into the Christian, we put God back into the man. That's the good news. That is the gospel. Now in this house of God, which is people, Moses ministered as a servant. But Jesus as a son, and therefore the son is much more to be obeyed, much more to be listened to, much more to be honored and heeded than the servant. Moses served faithfully as a servant. What is the ministry of a servant? Well, a servant is always preparing things. They must prepare meals. They must prepare rooms. They must prepare uh, the property, the yard. They are always working in anticipation of something yet to come. So Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken 
later or yet to come. But Christ, but Jesus as a son. So what is the role of a son in a house? It, it's to take over. It's to possess it, to use whatever he likes. The house was made for him. So Christ has come to inhabit us, as Paul again prays in Ephesians, that Christ may make his home in your hearts. So now the writer of Hebrews declares, we are that house if. At this point, they interject the little word if. And we are his house if we hold fast our confidence and our hope. And then again in verse 14, for we share, we share in Christ if only we hold our first confidence firm to the end. Well, what does this mean? Well, there are two possible views of this that are usually taken by believers, by the Christian world. There is that view which says that we can enter into the house of God and become part of it, that Christ can come to dwell in our hearts and we can be the tabernacle of the Most High. And then later on, because we fail to lay hold of all that God gives us, we sin, we lose what we've gained, Christ leaves us, and we lose our salvation. This is the view that is called Arminianism, excuse me, after a man named Arminius, a theologian in the Middle Ages. This view suggests that it is possible to lose our faith after we have once become the habitation of the Most High God. But if we take that view, we're immediately in direct contradiction with some very clear and precise statements elsewhere that declare the exact opposite. There is no possible way to hold that view without putting Scripture into contradiction with Scripture. For instance, in John 28, Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Why? Because no one is able to take them out of my Father's hand, he says. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. That's John 10, 29. Romans 8, verse 35 says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Paul goes on to list, all these possibilities. And then he declares, no, in all things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Romans eight thirty seven. It's impossible, you see, to take that view of it. Then what's the correct view? There, well, there's another possible meaning here that suggests that once having professed to receive Jesus, once having him come in, if then we do not manifest signs of a new life, if nothing happens to our behavior as a result of this, we have simply been self-deceived. We never had faith despite the external appearance. The religious observances that we have gone through, this, this, this is the danger this whole book faces. And we're going to return to this theme again and again. The book of Hebrews is addressed to a body of people among whom were certainly some of those Christian, whose Christian life was, was highly in doubt because they were not growing. They were not going on. They were not entering into what God had provided for them. They're talking here about some who have fallen into a, a self-confident delusion and who feel themselves to be Christians, they've gone through every possible prescribed ritual to identify themselves with Christianity, whatever those might be. 
And because of this, they feel that they're Christians. They believe the right things. They hold the right creed. They have orthodoxy, if you will, in all of their bones and their body. They are rigid. They, they, they proclaim the truth and, and they conform to the doctrine in every degree. But they're self-deceived because they are unable to manifest what God has come into human hearts to make, to produce. They reveal that there never was faith in the beginning. So in Hebrews, continuance, that long direction, consistency is the ultimate proof of reality. In other words, consistency and long obedience in the same direction. The, the illustration he gives comes, confirms this. And here it is in chapter 3, verses 7 through 13 of, he, of Hebrews. A rest for the people of God. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and, and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not, not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be any of you an, an unbelieving heart, an evil and unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And then in verse 16 through 19, for those who, for, for who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was, was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not though, with those who sinned, whose bodies fell into the wilderness? And, and to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. So the writer of Hebrews points out this people compromised almost the whole number of those who left Egypt and under, under Moses. They had fulfilled every, every symbol of deliverance, but they were not delivered. While they were in Egypt, they had killed the Passover lamb. They had sprinkled the blood of it over the doorpost on, on that horrible night when the angel of death passed through the land and took the life of every firstborn son and every household. They, they were safe. They had followed Moses as they left Egypt and had come to the borders of the Red Sea. And as the waters flowed in front of them and the armies of the Egyptians were fast coming from behind them, Moses lifted up his rod. The waters parted. They passed through the sea as well. And as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, they were baptized unto Moses in the sea, 1 Corinthians 10, 2. They were, they were in it. They were united into him. These people, as they wandered through the wilderness on their way from Egypt to Canaan, had enjoyed the protection, the guidance of the pillar of fire by night, the cloud by day. Speaking of the protection and guidance and fatherly care of God, they'd even been fed every day by, by manna as it came from the skies, every morning fresh. Centuries later, when the Jews of Jesus' day heard him refer to them as the children of, of the devil, they said to him, We're not children of the devil. We're children of Abraham. Don't you know what happened to our fathers? Talk about the people of God. We're the true people of God. Our fathers ate bread in the wilderness for 40 years. If that is not a sign that we're the people of God, then I don't know what could be. That's John 6, 30 through 66. But the writer of Hebrews says, with whom was he provoked 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned? 
whose bodies fell in the wilderness? When the test finally came, as they stood on the borders of the promised land, they were given the word of, of God through Moses to advance, to take the land. But they held back because they were afraid of the giants that, in, that lived in the cities of that day, in that land. And when they were asked to face the giants and by the principle of faith overcome them and enter into the rest of the land, they refused to do so. They turned back and for 40 years wandered in the wilderness. The test came when for the first time they were asked to come to grips with, with the thing that could destroy their life in the land. The giants and their failure to do so revealed the bitter truth that they never had any faith. They had never really believed God. They were only acting as they did to escape the damage, the death, the danger of Egypt. But they had no intention of coming into conflict with the giants in the land. And the word of God is pointing out to us that we may profess Jesus. We may take our stand in some outward way, at least on the cross of Christ and claim his death for us. Yet when it comes to the test, when God asks us to lay hold, to grab the giants in our life, which are destroying us, the giants of anxiety, the giants of fear, the giants of bitterness, the giants of jealousy, the giants of envy and impatience and all those other things that keep me and keep us in turmoil and, and fretting and make, make me to be constantly in trouble with our friends. When we're, when we're asked to lay hold of those by the principle of faith, by faith, laying hold of those things. And when we refuse to do so, the writer says we are in danger of remaining in the wilderness and never and have never entered the promised land. Hebrews 12, excuse me, Hebrews 3, 12 through 14. Take care, brothers, lest there be any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. You see, we share in Jesus if, if that faith which began continues to produce in us that faith which alone can produce, that the fruit of the Spirit. This is the second warning of this book. The first one was against drifting, the danger of not paying attention, the peril of letting these truths, which alone have power to set us free, to drift unheeded, unheard. But the second warning, this is the second warning, and it, it's against the danger of hardening, of hearing the words and believing them, understanding what they mean, but then not taking action on them. The peril of holding the truth in the head, but never letting it get that long, long distance it has to travel into my heart. But truth known never does anything. It is truth done which sets us free. Truth known simply puffs us up in, in a pride of knowledge. It is, it is truth done, truth acted on, that moves, delivers, and changes. 
The terrible danger which the writer of Hebrews is pointing out is that truth that is known but not acted on has an awful effect of hardening the heart so that it is no longer able to act. And we lose the ability to believe. This was what Jesus meant when he said to his disciples, if they believe not Moses and the prophets, neither will they believe the one should rise from the dead. Luke 16, 31. At the close of Jesus's ministry, after this incredible demonstration of, of the power of God in, in the midst and in, in the group of people, how, how many stood with him at the foot of the cross? It's a tiny band of women and one man. And they had been one, not necessarily by his miracles, but by his words. It's why God says, I swore my wrath, they shall never enter my rest. That's not petulance. That does not mean God is upset because he has offered something and they will not take it. That is simply a revelation of the nature of the case. When the truth is known and not acted on, it always, on every level of life, in every area of human knowledge, has this strange quality. It hardens so that the heart is not able to believe what it is refusing to act on. So now we come to the sign of reality. What is it that unmistakably marks the one who has genuinely become part of God's house? What is the rest of God, the mark of reality? Well, Hebrews 4, 1 through through 2. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For the good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. That does not mean the message did not meet with belief. When the Israelites stood at the borders of the land, they had no doubts at all that the land was there. They believed in it. Nor was it that they did not believe there was honey and milk in the land. They believed it. There was, a, there was a species of belief, but there was no faith. For faith is more than belief. Faith is, is activity on that belief. There was belief. There was even strong desire to enter the land, but they did not enter because there was no faith. They would not act on that which had been given. The writer says the same gospel was given to them as to given to us as to them. We have the same good news, the same possibility of entering into a life of rest. These words have have to be taken seriously. We think we can receive Jesus as Savior, raise our hand, accept Christ, and, and then that settles the matter. We, we, we go to heaven. There can never be any doubt about it from then on, though, though there's no change in our life. But the promise of Jesus is that when he comes into the human heart, there's radical change of lordship. And that's inevitable in the course of, it, of its working itself out. Re- result is a revolutionary change in behavior. Unless that takes place... There's been no reality in our conversion. The goal of his working in us is rest. So now what is this rest? Well, in verse 3, we learn it's pictured for us by, by the Sabbath. For we who have believed enter that rest as he has said. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. 
Here's a rest that's been available to mankind ever since mankind first appeared on earth. It was available from the foundation of the world, verses 4 through 5 of chapter 4. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, as God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, they shall not enter my rest. We, we know the story of creation. On the seventh day, God stopped his work. He rested on the seventh day, intending for that to be a picture of what rest, uh, what the rest of faith is. It's been available to us since the beginning of the world. This rest was figured in the Sabbath, and anyone who learns to live out of rest is keeping the Sabbath as God meant it to be kept. It was also prefigured, if you will, in the land of Canaan. Yet in verse 8 it says, For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. If, if the figure had been enough, God would not later on in the scriptures have recorded the words. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. You see, obviously Canaan too was nothing but a figure, nothing but a picture, a shadow. Then what is the real rest? We come to verse 10, and it's most clearly stated, For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. So here's a a revolutionary new principle of human behavior on which God intends man to operate. And it was his intention from the very, very beginning. It is from that that men fell. And it is to this now in Jesus Christ we are restored. Unless this principle is operative in our life, we can have no assurance that we belong to the body of Christ. This is the clear declaration of this, of this writer throughout the entire book of Hebrews. We have all been brainwashed since birth with a false concept of the basis of human activity. We have been sold on the lie that we have in ourselves what it takes to be what we want to be to be a man, a woman, to achieve whatever we desire to be. We are sure we have what it takes, or if we do not have it now, we know where we can get it. We can educate ourselves, we can acquire more information, we can develop new skills, and we get this done. And when we get this done, we will have what it takes to be what we want to be. For three and a half years, Peter tried his best to please the Lord by being dedicated, earnest, the sincere efforts to serve him out of his own will, and he failed dismally because he could not be convinced that he did not have what it takes. When Jesus told him, you will never have what it takes until the cross comes into your life, he would not receive it. He said, Lord, don't talk to me about a cross. I don't want to hear anything about that. And then Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. You are an offense unto me. You do not understand the things of God, but only the things of men. That's Matthew 16, 21 through 23. And it was not until that day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit opened his eyes to the full meaning of the cross and all that the Lord had made available to him by living his life in him became a part of Peter's experience that he realized what the Lord had meant. Not till then did he realize what it took to be a Christian, a follower, a believer. We repeat, it takes Christ to be a Christian and it takes God to be a man. And when you put Christ Back in the Christian, you put God back in the man. This is God's design for living. This is the new principle of every human activity to stop my own efforts. 
I, we do not have what it takes, and we never did. The only one who can live the Christian life is Jesus Christ. He proposes to reproduce his life, though, in us. Our part is to expose every situation to his life in us. And by that means, depending on him and not on us, we are to meet every situation, enter into every circumstance, and perform every activity that way. I cease, I stop from my own labors, from our own work. This is the way we begin the Christian life, if we're a Christian. We came to the place where we stopped trying to save ourselves, did we not? We quit trying to be good enough to get into heaven. We said, hey, I'm not going to make it. It, we, we looked at Jesus and said, if, if he has taken my place, then that's all I need. So receiving him and resting on that fact by faith, we stopped our own efforts. We ceased from our own work and rested on his. And now Paul says in Colossians, as therefore you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so live in him. Colossians 2.6. As so in the same way. As we received him, so live in dependence on him to do all the things through us. Step out on that. And what is the result? Well, it's rest. Wonderful rest. Relief, release, no longer worrying, fretting, straining, for we are resting on the one who is wholly adequate to do through us everything that needs to be done. He does not turn us into robots. He works through our thinking, our feeling, and our reasoning, but our dependence must be on him. Notice the word that is stressed throughout the whole section, today. This is God's design for living today. It is not inactivity, but it is the freedom from strain. It is the principle on which he expects everything to be done. Our work, our school, our studies, our play, our responsibilities at home, at work, wherever we are, all are to be fulfilled out of a reliance on this new principle of human behavior. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do it all in the name of God. And by the authority and ability of the Lord Jesus, Colossians 3.17. So now a final word on how. If we if we have never yet entered into this principle in any degree and yet have been truly born of God by the Holy Spirit, this this study is going to find us asking this question. So, Lord, show me how. I want to enter into this rest. I want to know what this is. So then we look at the instrument by which we enter in, and that is simply the word of God. In Hebrews 4, 11 through 12, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by, by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and of spirits, of joints and of the marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. In order to enter into this new principle, we must give up the old. But the problem is the old basis of activity is so ingrained in my thinking then I am automatically respond to old thought patterns along old lines of reaction. So through the new life of Jesus, so that even though the new life of Jesus may be in me, in us, we find ourselves kind of repudiating it and responding the way we used to, reacting in bitterness, impatience, anger, frustration, anxiety, worry, fear, trepidation, uncertainty, inferiority. We do not know how to recognize this old practice, this old practical appearance, what's going to help us to recognize it? Well, Hebrews says the word of God, that's what this living marvelous word becomes an instrument in the hands of the Holy Spirit. 
And it's a two-edged action. It strips off the faults if we seek to obey it. As we read it, we discover that it exposes those in, that entrenched power of, of the flesh in our life, and it strips off all that pretense. It is not only, it's not only the Bible which is meant by the phrase, the Word of God, it's the truth of God, whether it comes by a sermon, by Scripture, by another person, by confirmation. It is the truth that strips off the faults. It can be utterly ruthless, moving in on us, backing us into a corner, taking down all our fences and facades, worming its way right into the heart of our nature, discerning even between the soul and the spirit. But the word has a twofold function. It not only strips off the faults, but it reveals the truth. When we come to the place where, like Jacob, we are ready to take a good look at ourselves, then it, then there comes the marvelous, healing, wholesome, comforting, sweet delivering word that sets us on our feet again and shows us that in Jesus, every provision for every need, we no longer need to go on wearily fighting a battle that's already lost, but we can step out fresh, a new day in the glorious experience of victory that's already won. And what's the final outcome? Verse 13, and no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. We come at last to the God of reality. Remember that when Adam sinned, he hid from God. He, he hid because he realized he was naked. He is ashamed and he clothed himself. When, when all that pretense is stripped off and we see ourselves for what we are and by faith have appropriated what Christ is, when we, when we believe that that he not only died for me, but rose again to live in me. When we realize that we not only need him for what he did, but also for what he is, then we can stand again before God, just exactly as we are naked without need of, of, of a mask or, or a facade. We are exactly what we are. And that's all just men, just women, just sinners saved by grace, not nothing with nothing to defend, nothing that needs to be hidden, nothing that cannot be fully exposed to everyone. We discover this amazing lifting of burdens, a wonderful freedom, this amazing release. We've entered into rest. The fences come down between us and our friends and our family. We're not trying to hide anything anymore because we are what we are before God. We can be exactly what we are before men. Perhaps some of us have been in the wilderness a long, long time, too long. Normally, as this, as this book will make clear as we go on, it is, it is expected that a Christian who comes to know the Lord will be led into the experience of rest within a few years of, of this conversion, but it may take longer than a few months. But, it, but even if we've been living in the wilderness of self-effort, for many years, it's still possible to die to our unbelief and to leave that carcass of unbelieving self-sufficiency behind. And like the new generation born in the wilderness, follow our heavenly Joshua into the land. Closing with Revelation chapter 5, verses 12 through 13. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Amen. And God bless.